Hey, it's Anita, and this is the Anita Posh Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Anita Posh Show, where it is my pleasure to keep you up to date with topics around Bitcoin on a global stage and also the local impact it has on people like you and me. My guest today is Adam B. Levine. Adam is not only the managing editor for podcasts and audio at Coindesk, he's also the host of the longest running English language talk show about Bitcoin called Speaking of Bitcoin, formerly known as Let's Talk Bitcoin. I appreciate Adam's work a lot. I have been an avid listener of his podcast for many years now. Adam is also the CEO of Tokenly.com. He has minted some NFTs by himself and he had Meta Kovan on his show. Meta Kovan is the guy who bought people's NFT for 69 million US dollars, the most expensive NFT sold at an art auction up to, till today. Our topic are NFTs and how they are going to shape the world of art in the future. If you want to support my show, I would ask you to go to anita.link slash donate. At the moment, I only have one sponsor. If you're a company and want to be a part of the show, please send me an email to hello at anitaposh.com. As always, you can watch this video on YouTube. Please be sure to subscribe to my channel and you can also find it on all major podcast platforms. Just search for my name, Anita Posch, P-O-S-C-H, and you will find it. And now, a very short word from my sponsors today, and then on to the interview. Enjoy! Many people worry about the right storage for their Bitcoin. And yes, holding them isn't always easy. Smartphones get lost, hard drives can crash, and online wallets get hacked frequently. The safest way of storing cryptocurrencies long-term is offline in a physical way. That's why Coinfinity developed the Card Wallet, the professional and easy cold storage solution. The Card Wallet supports various security features such as high-quality materials and tamper-proof features which prevent the manipulation of the card and make it a safe place for your beloved coins. Get yourself a Card Wallet now. You will get 20% off if you order at cardwallet.com slash anita. That's cardwallet.com slash Anita. Do you want to stay up to date with the things that happen in Bitcoin from my point of view? Then subscribe to Anita's Weekly, my newsletter with articles, videos, quotes, short tips on how to use Bitcoin and all that for free. Subscribe to Anita's Weekly at anita.link slash weekly. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the show. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation, Anita. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah, Adam, before I spoke the introduction and I said I really appreciate your work a lot because you are the host of the longest running, longest running English language Bitcoin talk show with uh, fabulous uh, co-hosts. And um, you also had Meta Kovan on the show in the last weeks. Mm -hmm. And Meta Kovan's the one who bought people's NFT for 
69 million US dollars. And yeah, we're going to talk about all that. And please, before we start, because maybe people don't know you yet, please introduce yourself. Oh, sure. Yeah, so uh, my name is Adam B. Levine. Uh, I'm not the other Adam Levine. I'm the one with the B initial. But if you search for me on the internet now, you'll find me if you search for Adam B. Levine. There used to be a bunch of lawyers who competed with me. Anyways, <laughs> um, uh, I started doing Bitcoin podcasts back. Well, I started doing podcasts back in 2005 or in the gaming space. I started doing Bitcoin podcasts and building Bitcoin communities in 2011. Um, and then in 2013, I started my fifth Bitcoin podcast, the second one under my real name. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, it was the right place, right time. There was really no other English language accessible content at the time. Uh, podcasts took off very quickly. Uh, within a year, I had gotten tired of the fact that the only podcasts that I could listen to were effectively mine because all the other ones that had started up uh, subsequently had not been able to kind of survive that year because at the time there wasn't really, there was no money in it. I mean, let's just be real. <laughs> um, you know, we were entirely tip supported for a long time back when Bitcoin tipping was like a big thing. I turned it into a podcast network and helped start about 15 other shows. I, as part of that, um, I was one of the very early users of tokens um, uh, back in late 2013, early 2014. I uh, created a, uh, a tokenized rewards program called LTB Coin that was effectively an incentivization mechanism for audience on one side uh, and for content creators on the other side. We had kind of this multi-layered approach to, you know, like uh, effectively having each of these different groups of people compete uh, for a fixed amount of the token that was going to be allowed. This was kind of my conception of like, well, if you don't have to mine for consensus, what can you mine for? And you mine for engagement. And today we're starting to see that. And that's, again, really exciting to see those roll out in meaningful ways. Um, I started a company called Tokenly in 2014, first started as an open source project, and then I spun it into a funded project uh, to build out infrastructure for the types of token use cases that I had created. Um, and that I was increasingly exploring because we basically found that once you created the token back in the early days, like it was, you had a token now. And that was like really magical because before that you used to have to launch a whole blockchain and have to have miners and all these other things. And so the ability to use the Bitcoin blockchain in our case uh, made it so that you could do something else with the token. And like I said, we formed our kind of own uh, uh, idea of what mining could be if you didn't need it for consensus. So tokenly um, in 2015, uh, turned into a real company. Um, I uh, funded it myself initially with my family and uh, from from some early participation in the in the crypto space. And then um, in uh, 2016, we did a half million dollar round um, on Bank to the Future uh, in an equity crowd sale and never sold the token. That was the one thing like the LTB coin token. I was always very concerned would come around to, you know, bite me in the butt. Uh, and so we just gave it out to people, and uh, and that was pretty cool. After I started the company, that started taking more and more and more of my time. And I was we had built this whole kind of custom community platform with you know token control access forums and like lots of different community features, and we had a really great community. And I felt like I was not doing a particularly good job of stewarding it since I was spending so much of my time on the entrepreneurial side. And so I sold the network to uh, BTC Media. Uh, which uh, I had felt like had done a good job with Bitcoin Magazine. And uh, in hindsight, that was not great, you know, uh, not, not my favorite decision that I've made. Um, but one of the things that was interesting about it was that we had a end-of-life event for the LTB coin token that we had launched. And people were able to trade their LTB coin token in for a token called Poe, which at, at, for a while, you know, some people were able to, you know, extract a lot of money you know, from their participation in the LTB coin uh, project and from the LTB network. And that was really cool to see too. 
um, because we had always kind of been like, well, you know, this is useful within our ecosystem, but if we ever get acquired, then, you know, like this will all make sure this is part of the buyout. And so we were able to do that. And that was a kind of very exciting kind of tokens don't usually have end of lives, right? They just kind of <laughs> go on and on and on and people stop using them and maybe they, you know, come back at some point in the future. But, um, but yeah, so, so that was a cool thing. And then, um, uh, <laughs> we can, we can talk about it more. I built a number of different products with tokenly tokenmarkets.com, token.fm, um, and identity and, uh, like, uh, off-chain token control access system called token pass and a whole bunch of other things. Actually, we built uh, on-chain vending machines called SwapBots super early. And then, uh, basically, uh, we went to launch some of the projects around the time that the ICO, um, boom, uh, was, you know, starting to get serious and, uh, our lawyers threatened to quit when we tried to do an ICO. And so then I went down the rabbit hole of trying to do a security token. And then <laughs> at the end of that process, I figured out that security tokens, although they're possible to do actually nobody wants them. And this was in 2018. So mm -hmm. there was no infrastructure for them and no real market for them. There isn't even really today, but it's starting at least. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I, uh, uh, and then I tried to fundraise around that stuff. Uh, without using a token in an environment where everybody wanted a token for about 18 months and just got completely demoralized with, with my ability to actually, you know, like complete any of this stuff because I wasn't willing to take the risks to do a token. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I, uh, I went to, uh, so I'm giving you my entire history here, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's what's happened. That's what's happened. Yeah. Uh, so then I went to, um, to Pete Rizzo over at, uh, over at Coindesk, who was the editor in chief at the time. And we didn't really have much of a relationship. We'd kind of always been ships passing in the night. You know, he was also early to the space. Um, and I was like, hey, you should syndicate Let's Talk Bitcoin. Um, because the, the, again, like the audience over on the network, uh, one of the things that I had given up uh, in that sale was my subscription feed, which I had used to bootstrap distribution for the entire network. And so we had seen distribution go from about, you know, like in the, you know, 10,000, 10, you know, 10,000 to 15,000 range on a per episode basis down to about 3,000 over the course of three years. And just in general, I was unhappy with, uh, with, on the one hand, the way that the network was managed, and on the other hand, um, their unwillingness to really include me in any sort of way that could help them to, to stop the bleeding. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, you know, like, let, let me syndicate with you. And that conversation over the course of six months turned into um, me building out a podcast product for Coindesk, which had tried before but hadn't had a bunch of success. Um, and so I came on there in October of 2019 as a editor of a new podcast division, unbudgeted, you know, just me. I uh, identified uh, uh, Nathaniel Whitmore um, as a, an early talent um, mm -hmm. who was uh, doing a show called Crypto 3 at 3 um, at the time on YouTube with about 100 audience members after about three months. And, uh, and so we, we you know, talked with him. We rebranded the show as The Breakdown. And then we relaunched it on Coindesk, and I edited that myself every day for about six months while I was doing, you know, other shows too. I have other shows I do at Coindesk, and then I uh, started, you know, and then it was it was a wild success, and I uh, hired Rob Mitchell from the Bitcoin game um, as my deputy editor, and he took over that. And I'll stop going through through this uh, this this incredibly detailed litany, but that that's kind of where I am now. <laughs> I guess I guess we should also do an episode about podcasting in the Bitcoin space. That would be very interesting. Um, and yeah. you made so many different things. You learned so much, I guess, and you have so many stories to tell about all that stuff. Too. Yeah, I, I, I got a very cool thing coming out uh, around NFTs uh, uh, later this month. Uh, it's going to be something yeah. unlike we've really? ever seen before in crypto. It's ah, fun. okay. I'm looking forward. Okay, 
Long story short, no, going back to the, to the beginning, because I would be interested in why did you even start looking into Bitcoin? When did you hear about it the first time and why uh, were you interested in it? Yeah, so, um, so I heard about Bitcoin in 2011. Um, and in 2011, I was uh, unemployed, actually. I had uh, been doing sales uh, at uh, my father's company. My father had, was a second generation paper salesman, had gone off with a couple of partners to start an upstart company called Excellent Packaging. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, basically specialized in environmentally friendly food service packaging products. So if you see like a, a plate that's made of sugarcane bagasse or, um, or a, a fork that's made of bioplastic, those were the types of things that we were doing in 2007, 2008, 2009. And we introduced many of those products to the U.S. markets. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that gave me a set of experiences where like I was aware of a lot of the problems with the Internet because the systems that we were using were very antiquated and the challenges around actually transferring ownership when you're not transferring physical ownership, like to do drop shipping or something like that, kind of uh, demonstrate the challenges around the internet. So uh, skipping ahead a little bit. Um, so after I, uh, after I had lost this job and uh, was just kind of trying to figure out what to do, this is kind of in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And, um, and I had been really trying to understand money because I realized I had come out of school um, with effectively no understanding of how these systems actually worked. And they seemed really, really important. And I didn't really understand what was wrong with them, but I understood that something was wrong with them intuitively. There was some sort of problem that meant that these things were not performing their functions. And so I was really interested in gold. I was really interested in Bitcoin. I was really interested in any sort of alternative that, that kind of looked like it, it might be something that's disconnected from the existing system, at least partially. And I mean, like, to put this in context, though, in terms of how much I bought in, uh, I think I spent about $100 on Bitcoin at the time, and I spent about $500 on Iraqi dinar. Um, an Iraqi <laughs> dinar is like still an ongoing internet scam, right? Where like, okay. uh, basically, after the US invaded Iraq, the, the currency went very poorly, right? Because the, the government was divested, government currency, really problematic. Um, and so there was this narrative on the internet, and still is today, that uh, that the, the Iraqi dinar currency is going to be revalued. The U.S. is going to leave. They'll revalue the currency. The currency will be worth, you know, 100 times, 200 times, whatever, what the face value is, and it'll be a, a great investment. So I thought that that was more uh, likely than Bitcoin um, to actually be a thing. And my concern about Bitcoin was always that it just felt like something like this couldn't work, right? And, um, and so, you know, I, I uh, got involved. I, I'm, I'm a very entrepreneurial type of person. So the first project I actually designed before I even really got involved with any of this stuff was this, uh, the idea of a physical Bitcoin called um, a Betcoin. Um, there was basically a poker chip um, that would have Bitcoin imbued into it and wax tamper evidence seals and all kinds of stuff like that. And, uh, and I, I thought that was a really cool idea. So anyways, um, uh, so that was kind of the, the, the mindset that I was in. And then my mode of communicating with people and of sharing ideas has always been podcasts. Since about 2005, when I stumbled into it by accident in the gaming sector, like I said. Um, and then after I had done the gaming thing, I built a whole community there with columnists and a whole thing. And it was actually very successful. Um, and then I had, uh, I had worked on a, uh, on a, a game mod. Uh, for this game called Company of Heroes that was like this persistent multiplayer thing. And I got into shoutcasting, right? Like uh, narrating uh, game replays like you do, like sports casting and stuff like that. And so I hadn't really done much, many podcasts in that time. And I started doing a Bitcoin podcast first with, I believe, um, uh, the creator of the Bitcoin subreddit. 
who went oh. by uh, Atlas, and he was about a, like a 17-year-old hardcore libertarian, like like you know the type of libertarian who is like, I'm not afraid of having any conversation with anybody. My principles can stand up to that. And so, uh, so I, I started doing a show called uh, Bit Talk with Atlas and Atom, A-T-O-M. I'm not very good at uh, at uh, hiding my name, but but that was what it was. <laughs> I actually ran an episode of that on uh, on the speaking of Bitcoin, formerly Let's Talk Bitcoin feed. I heard to, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to look back at those early episodes. So that was one of five podcasts that I started. I started mm -hmm. two additional ones, which I won't go into. Um, and then uh, and then I started the Daily Bitcoin Show about a week before I started Let's Talk Bitcoin. And the Daily Bitcoin Show had a different cast and a different crew. And I was like, uh, I it's like the Seinfeld thing, feats of strength, right? Um so I never really had a lot of resources to work with. I was actually living with my parents um, in a tiny house <laughs> that was uh, on their property that used to like have a loom in it from you know forever ago, um, and uh, and living there, there with my wife. And so we had actually moved to my parents' house to work on permaculture projects. Um, and I was like, eh, you know, all this is nonsense. Like let's just let's just focus on that. And then Bitcoin started doing stuff. And I was trying to understand what was going on. And it was obvious that there was just no place that you could go to actually like understand this stuff if you weren't like a developer or an engineer. Um, it was basically Bitcoin talk on the one side and then the Reddit had been started, but it was pretty small at that point. And so I started, let's talk, so I started the Daily Bitcoin Show and the Daily Bitcoin Show ran for five days. And then I collapsed at the end of it because <laughs> I was basically doing all of the editing and I was doing this on Audacity, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and just in general, like, you know, like the pace was nuts and it was, it was a pretty highly produced show. And what actually caused it to collapse though, was that we had been so successful in that first week that we had an investor, a listener come to us who wanted to invest into it. And so I had like a bunch of conversations with him and set up this investment. And I, I contacted my, uh, my co-hosts, uh, who were basically just walk on roles. Um, you know, they would like walk on and they would, you know, talk about stuff with me and then I would go off and do the edit and do the posting and do the prep for the episode and kind of all the other stuff. Um, and, and I was like, Hey guys, we're, this looks like it's going to work. So let's formalize this relationship. I'd like each of you to have 20% equity in the project and I'm going to keep 60% since it's my idea and I'm doing everything. And they basically, uh, walked off at that point and we're like, that's a, that's not a, it's not a fair reflection of the work. And so I was like, all right, well, <laughs> okay, never mind. And so um, Andreas Antonopoulos had been our final guest, our first guest on the show, on the Daily Bitcoin show, and our final guest. And he was talking about Mount Gox um, mm -hmm. at the time. And, and kind empty of Gox. About Mount how Gox. are you yeah, saying? Exactly. He's going empty. empty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, and I had known Stephanie Murphy because she had been doing a show called Pork Therapy. And I had, um, through a, a listener, um, I had been connected with her. Um, and she had done the intro for the Daily Bitcoin show. And I really liked the, the show that she did with Pork Therapy. And I you know, really liked Andreas. And I thought that he was, a, again, a great guest. I had actually talked to him uh, months before about potentially being a host on, on the Daily Bitcoin show. But he uh, was under a non-compete or something like that that didn't expire until, until shortly after. So the timing was kind of like just right to, to pull in these people. And, um, and you know, we started doing uh, Let's Talk Bitcoin as a twice-weekly show. And it immediately, you know, took off, bootstrapped from the uh, from the success that we'd had with the Daily Bitcoin Show. The the feed on uh, FeedBurner is still called the Daily Bitcoin Show. That's the the one that the LTB network still uses today, which is very funny. So, but that that was kind of uh, what led me to it. And then from there, it was just a, a wild ride, and I just did my best to hang on and to, you know, and to you know, like try and be as helpful and kind of clarifying as possible. Mm -hmm. Cool. So um, two weeks ago or something, you had Mita Kovan on. 
And Metakovan is the buyer of uh, people's artwork, the, the NFT that was sold for nine, uh, 69 million US dollars in Ether. Can you, let's talk a little bit more now about uh, the NFT space and the use cases and uh, the, how the art world, the art world is going to look in the future, because I think it will change a lot. What was uh, Metakovan's reasoning? Um, why did he pay so much money for an NFT? Well, this was a big question that I had too. Um, you know, like, I think there's a couple of factors that go into it. I think first off, he just wanted it. And the second thing that's interesting about this is that, like, we think about it as $69 million, but that's not really the opportunity cost that he had. The opportunity, like, the cost of that money for him was a lot lower, right? Like, he probably, you know, bought a lot during the crowd sale for Ethereum, or there was a long period of time where Ether traded for very, very small amounts of money. And so I, it's interesting to think about what is the Beeple sale valued at today? It's probably double that, right? Because of how much uh, Ether has appreciated, right? So, so it's kind of all relative, right? So, so that's the thing that, that I have to constantly remind myself of. And one of the first things that I wrote uh, in, uh, in, in kind of the Bitcoin world, did, you know, went on IRC, did a bunch of interviews, was, um, was uh, the new renaissance, how Bitcoin millionaires will change the world. And, and that piece basically interviewed, I interviewed a lot of people. I think Eric Voorhees too. So it was like the first interview I ever did with him. And, uh, and the thing that was interesting to me was that, again, because these were people who felt like they had basically found a windfall, right? Uh, they were thinking differently about the money than people who are traditionally rich. And they were much more kind of idealistic, much more sort of, um, you know, like visionary in terms of, of uh, painting that sort of belief. Um, and that is in large part because they perceived personally their cost of that money to have been very low relative to the now potential good that they could do with it. And I think we've seen that a lot of times in crypto. I think, again, you look at the Doge community and the Doge community for everything else that we might think about it, you know, like they've actively undertaken, and I fully expect that to ramp up aggressively as the price of Doge goes crazy, um, you know, like this very, like, uh, you know, um, charity driven, right? Like, it's partly about uh, about generating press, but a lot of it is just about this is silly. So why not actually do some good in the real world? And I think that that's something that kind of stretches across to all of this. So part of it is about the cost of money uh, and, and kind of the way that that changes the psychology of how you feel when you spend it. The other part, I think, is is signaling. And that's something that we've seen that that I've really that that's that's. I respond well to incentives. I'm very opportunistic, right? If I see an opportunity to connect two dots together that would solve a problem for me or be valuable to me in another way, then that's something I'm going to try to do. And I think that a lot of people are like that. And one of the things that's always been really challenging about it, a lot of people you know, who are early in crypto are like that. Um, I think one of the things that's been really challenging about you know, about uh, like a lot of these technologies, like NFTs, for example, is that you kind of have a first mover problem where the... like. If you just do something, like I've done so many things and they haven't worked, right? And that's in large part because nobody cares. But one of the things that people care about is big dollar amounts. And so if you can have an NFT that sells for $69 million, or at least looks like it sells for $69 million, because really the cost of the person is like maybe $50,000, right? In terms of what they spent to get that money. Uh, and then it just appreciated in value so much. 
then you can create a signaling event, right? And a signaling event is like, I like to think about it like it sends up a beacon, right? And that beacon is so much more visible than the things that are actually happening on the ground that it's, it's visible and it attracts attention from a fundamentally different and much larger group of people who are out there. So I think that that played a large role in it too. And I actually asked him that because I, that's been my thesis around like, why would someone pay $69 million for that? That's the reason. The reason is because it's partly about wanting to have it and because you have the money to do it. Uh, and it's also partly because it's important as a milestone in the journey of these technologies and as a way for people to, to, to better understand them. This is something we've seen with Bitcoin over and over again, right? Like when Bitcoin was below $10 and then it spiked to over $120, which was one of the first bubbles that I witnessed personally, um, like there were a lot of people, including myself, who were like, this could actually be a thing like it it's it's not behaving in a way that looks like it's about to fail it's behaving in a way where it looks like it's a it's a speculative asset that we don't understand the value of but we know that the value is probably higher and the cost of running it, the cost of doing all this other stuff at the time again people were starting to mine with gpus um you know but like it was still largely you know like cpus and the first asics were in development at that point so mining was much more kind of egalitarian and you could do it and the tokens had just been cheap right um the biggest challenge in the early days was finding the tokens was actually figuring out like how do i get this thing i tell a story uh it's the first time i didn't buy bitcoin was when um was uh, on the bitcoin talk forum there was this guy who went by bitcoin morpheus and uh, he was based out of dc and you would send him an envelope of cash uh, like literally in the mail, and then he would send you Bitcoin. Like he uh -huh. promised to send you Bitcoin. So I was like, no, that's too sketchy. Uh -huh. So I didn't do that. But um, but like that, that I think is is the thing um, just generally about this space and about NFTs specifically. You know, like it's the, it's this beaconing uh, event that then attracts attention. And I think the other event besides the Beeple sale, which is important as a price event, but not important as a mass adoption event. I think the Top Shot project is very important as a as a mass adoption event. And I think what Top Shot has showed us, um, Dapper Labs does it. It's the NBA um, uh, licensing tie-in. Any given time, uh, you know, that they they want to introduce a new pack of cards or something like that. These cards do nothing at this point. Um, they, you know, will have like 350,000 people sitting there waiting to, to, to buy one, right, for like 9 to $14. Uh, and there will be, you know, like 90,000 packs, right, that they sell for this price. And so they can just effectively print money on the one side, which is very interesting. And then on the other side, uh, with, with the product that people want, and then on the other side, they still, even releasing 90,000 packs at a time, have, you know, like four out of five people uh, don't wind up getting the thing that they want. And so that's really interesting, too. And it's interesting to think about Dapper uh, and what they're doing with Flow insofar as the, the technology is almost irrelevant. The technology is a limiting factor in this case because the types of people who are talking about who are interested in, in that type of project they're not there for that. They're there for the tie-in to the, the brand that they like, which is, you know, basketball. Um, and so that's another, I think, really important takeaway about this moment that we're having with, um, with NFTs is that, like, it's, I think it's really tempting to, to believe that, that people understand things in the way that we understand things. And I don't think that that's true. I think that that's, that's a belief I used to have that's been largely beaten out of me over the last six years of trying to figure out how do you actually offer better options for people, right? And that's what technology really is, is it's, it's, it's connecting dots and it's making opportunities available that are not available without it. It's a, so, so the technology stops being a limiting factor. 
Um, and it starts being an enabling factor. And that's really exciting around all of this stuff. And so again, it's just to say that the NFT moment is right now on the one side about signaling. And on the other side, it's about the realization that technology can be a limiting factor more than it could be something that, you know, like you need it there for the thing to work. But Dapper doesn't care about the technology. That's not the reason why they're being successful. They're successful because of all the factors around that. And the technology is arguably making it harder. Mm -hmm. I mean, I heard an interview uh, with people on the Kara Swisher show. Uh, I mean, Kara Swisher is sadly also an opponent or she doesn't understand Bitcoin, I think. And uh, people, I, I heard him like a little bit proud say, yes, he immediately exchanged the Ether to US dollars. And he actually, he doesn't really believe in Bitcoin. He believes in the things around and NFTs and such. Um, I mean, is your heart bleeding uh, when you hear something like that or no? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't judge people in terms of what they yeah. believe or don't believe. So, I mean, like, uh, I mean, it, it, I understand the, I understand the impulse to that, right? Which is that crypto has been good to him, right? Like this was clearly a good thing. But the flip side is, is that again, like as we were talking about, if he had kept it, he would have doubled his money basically from, yeah. from the price that, uh, you know, that he got. But that's the thing is that like, if you have more than $10 million, like, like you, you like if, if you want to be like a billionaire, like if that's your aspiration, well, then $10 million isn't very much money. But if you're just a normal person who's like, hey, I would like to live my life knowing that I have the stability to do what I want and not necessarily work at a day job, $10 million gets you a long way and $60 million gets you even further. So I, I, I don't fault him for that at all. You know, like we all have our different risk tolerances and I've never had less crypto than I do today, largely because for so long I didn't really have a lot to lose. And so I was just like all in it, right? Just like all in it. But the, the emotional roller coaster that that can take you on um, is, uh, is very, I found to be challenging. I found that Every time I thought I would learn a lesson about the right way to, to behave in a given situation in terms of what these markets do, then I would learn that actually that was the lesson from the last time, but the lesson from this time is entirely different. And it's the opposite of the thing that I learned last time. So, so I, you know, I got a mortgage these days uh, and, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I, have, uh, I have a bunch of people over right now, actually, who are much more involved with the markets than I am. And I'm just like, it's, it's almost an entirely different universe to think about. And it's, it creates cognitive dissonance in me because I'm such an opportunist. I'm like, oh man, I'm leaving tons of money on the table by not participating in this. And on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, but I sleep so well at night. And, you know, like <laughs> I'm, I'm not concerned in the way that I used to. And I don't know about you, Anita, but I mean, like for all the advantages that come from, you know, being your own bank in this space, like there's so much responsibility and I know so many people, myself included, who have lost so much just because of one tiny little mistake and you just can never undo it. Yeah, you mean the self-custody thing or did you trade uh, your Bitcoin for something else? No, I did all of it. But I do mean the, uh, the self-custody thing. Mm -hmm. There's just so many things that can go wrong. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, to be honest, I'm, I feel quite safe. Uh, I don't move uh, Bitcoin around very much. I have a safe place. And yeah, of course, I, I, uh, every other month I'm checking my hardware wallets and stuff and if everything is fine. Um, but other than that, I, I sleep very well. And, you know, I, I think long term. And of course, I hope that in 10, 20 years, uh, my Bitcoin will be still there where I think they are. <laughs> and if it's not there, then it's not there anymore. You know, I, I still, I, I, I'm healthy. I have my work and the podcast and, and, uh, the, the knowledge I have. And I think I will make it. But of course, I would cry a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I find that uh, I have to make everything personal. Like there's like I've been I've been getting to understand my personality better as time goes on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and it's a it's a really it's a big advantage a lot of times to to, you know, to make everything so personal. And on the other side, it makes a lot of things really challenging. So but but again, like I mostly feel responsible, like I've helped people set up, you know, like multi-signature wallets where then the protocol has changed out from under them in terms of the way that the wallet implemented it. Specifically, this was the copay wallet. Um, ah, yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, and that was challenging, took mm-hmm. months and months and months. I've had people who like didn't properly secure stuff, literally had their computer hacked and then, you know, like lost it off of there. And just again, like the, there are real advantages to the self-custodying thing, but there are real challenges that come with mm-hmm. it. And I think that yeah. even for people who really understand it, it's difficult. Like if you're a security expert, then, you know, it's great. Uh, and if you have a very simple way that you set up this stuff, anyways, I'll stop talking about this. I'm just saying like, <laughs> I, I have such mixed feelings about all of this. On the one side, uh-huh. it's so empowering to give people options. On the other side, I, I've seen firsthand how, how much pain that can cause. And so it's a, it's a very, you know, double-sided uh, blade. Yeah, that's true. But I have the impression that the mix of multi-signature and not only self-custodied, uh, but like pro- products like Casa or I think Unchained Capital um, for like bigger stashes of money, I would say, or Bitcoin. I think that they are quite helpful and also that the technology is developing so fast. I mean, you were in much earlier than I did. I mean, these technological di- uh, difficulties, I think it's much easier today. I mean, you back in the days, there weren't even hardware wallets. No, it's true. I was just uh, looking through some stuff and and finding things that aren't even hierarchical deterministic wallets. Yeah, uh, exactly. So you know, like uh, so you know, right now you need a seed phrase. Back then, you, your wallet would just like generate a random address, and it wouldn't keep track of that address if you weren't like actively backing your stuff up. So no, it's uh, it's it's wild. There's definitely, like I said, it's very empowering, but with power comes responsibility. Exactly. And it's also something I think that we have to repeat over and over again. The people who managed to buy and hold Bitcoin from like 2012 up to today, that was hard work. That's not luck. You know, those people didn't get lucky. I mean, some of them maybe, but uh, it's a lot of work in it too. The best strategy that I have found is to completely forget what you own. That is the single best strategy to do a good job of securing it, securing it so that it's future proofed, mm-hmm. but then to do that. But to your point about the, the, the technology advancing so fast, that actually is the challenge that I've run into a couple of times is that the protocols will change a little bit. And like, um, like, uh, like for example, um, the way that the, uh, the Trezor was implemented uh, early on changed in terms of how you interact with hardware wallets because chrome extensions changed how they operate right and so like you so you can so that that's the experience i've had is i'm like these are the best you know current industry standards and this is the way to secure it and then like three years later i come back to that person and they're like i can't get to it and it's just like it's so yeah. it's like it's an active managed process right like mm-hmm. you you have to be doing what you're talking about which is like every month or every six months or something like that going back and revisiting your stuff making sure that nothing's mm-hmm. changed because if you miss a couple of updates then uh, then stuff can can uh, go go hinky but i mean again like i think that it's really good that these things have the capabilities to do that and i know it's totally not the uh, the bitcoin thing to say at all 
but I, I like these insured exchanges. Um, you know, I like the Coinbase's of the world as an ease of use thing. And like, it creates all kinds of problems. But my point broadly is, is that there isn't a scenario where you don't have problems, right? There are challenges, whether you're self-custodying or whether you're trusting someone else with custody. It's really just a question of um, like, well, what's the best fit for you? Because again, like, I have my like a lot of my parents' friends, for example. Like if I try to set them up with twelve words, like that's that's a losing game, right? <laughs> like like you just you just can't even do that. So, anyways, uh, we we can move on. But uh, but I've I've very much softened my my kind of really hardcore approach because I've seen the downsides of that too. And I think a balance again based on what is what what each individual needs is really kind of the answer to a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and coming back to people, I mean, you can't force people to uh, hold on to their Ether or Bitcoin if they don't feel comfortable with it or uh, they don't know how to secure it. So that said, I mean, of course he exchanges it Or if to... they don't believe in it. I mean, I just, yeah. I, mean, I, I think he made it pretty clear he doesn't believe in it, but that's okay. That's he doesn't yeah. need to believe it. For NFTs, the signaling event doesn't require him to believe it. It required him to, him or somebody else to make the sale. He was the guy who did it. You know, he put in a lot of work around this stuff. I don't particularly, you know, uh, like the piece that he sold, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, is that really worth $69 million? I don't know. But again, as an important milestone for NFTs broadly, it opened up the market in ways that is fundamentally different. We were talking with, um, through my company, Tokenly, I was talking with uh, uh, Zynga, the makers of Farmville, um, about, uh, about doing unique tokens and about doing fungible tokens and stuff like that to power their Farmville game and a bunch of other games that they were working on. And, you know, like, we talked with their CTO, and, they, and I, I have the email. It's They're, they're basically like... Yeah, we don't we don't think we're going to do anything with this. Like completely disinterested. Why would we do something like this? And now that's not the conversation. Now the conversation is how do we get in? How do we, you know, how do we take advantage of this opportunity? And so when you see that the game theory shift like that, that's really exciting to me. Um, and again, it just continues to speak to the fact that a lot of the things I've believed have been right. I've just been like four years early. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I can't complain. So, and what's your idea now? How can uh, the future artwork, uh, art, art world, sorry, look like? Uh, because people speak of the democratization of art because you have gatekeepers at the moment, people who say that's a good artist, that's not one. Uh, so basically like content creators on the internet uh, through NFTs, uh, you can earn some money online. What's your vision? What's your thoughts about that? Internet collectibles have never really been a thing because you couldn't really do ownership on the internet. And so that was, it took me about three years in crypto to actually come to this conclusion. Uh, but the thing that blockchains do is they allow you to track who owns what stuff on the internet. It's really simple. With Bitcoin, you're tracking who owns what you know money. With other things, you're tracking other types of ownership. But ownership in general and the ability to track is really useful. So I think from that perspective, it creates a new market opportunity. One of the one of the things that I went after was uh, like internet cartoonists. Uh, I, I registered counterparty assets under all you know the names of like all of the major cartoonists and approached a couple of them again like four or five years ago at this point. And and again, almost no interest. But I think that that really is it. Is that if you can take something of yours and you can turn it into a token that has a limited amount of them then that gives you something that you can sell that doesn't actually have a physical production you know, uh, side to it. And that's really cool. And the ability to show these things off, also really cool. So as far as like the ability to do it, I think that that's a really neat thing. Now, 
I don't think this fundamentally changes the dynamics of the art market. I know that that's a popular narrative right now. I don't believe that it's true. Ultimately, this is a medium that will have gatekeepers too. And the way that art works or really any sort of pop culture phenomenon works is that like there's the, the, the like top 10, right? And like they get most of the money. And that's just because of the, the nature of kind of this trendy stuff. And then like the, the bottom 90 gets the not very much at all. So what I've kind of discovered about NFTs is that you need to have an audience that wants to give you money in order for it to really solve anything at all. And it's not to say you can't be discovered through NFTs. I think that people can and they are. But I think that at this stage, it's not about that. It's about connecting the dots for people who already want to give you money to give you money for something that is an internet collectible. And maybe that winds up being great. Maybe it winds up being a dumb idea. But hey, I mean, people do all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, and I think that this is another venue for exploration around that. Uh, I do like the, uh, the idea that, um, that artist revenue splits can be built in at either a protocol level or a platform level. And I think more than anything, what, what I see about blockchains just broadly, but it also applies here, is that if you're working with a gallery or you're working with something like that in the real world, they are effectively a service provider, right? So they are like, you are the person who's created the content. They are providing the platform. That is a service provider relationship. But they do not treat that relationship like a service provider relationship for the most part. They treat it kind of like a partnership where they have a lot of power, a lot of control, um, and keep a lot of the money. Um, and so that is the thing I think that kind of blockchain platforms open up is the, the ability to say, all right, well, I'm listing this through your platform, but actually it's just everywhere, right? And so you are not my partner. You are the platform I am choosing to use, and I have many other options in order to do that. Um, and I think that that's the, the important part of the relationship is it takes the lock-in out of uh, of these types of relationships and certainly you can choose to you know just list it with one person or whatever and not put it onto a blockchain but if you do put it onto a blockchain then you open yourself up to that large potential market so i think that that's really powerful and kind of where i see this going i also think it's really powerful that that people are now thinking about things differently right digital art has not really been something that has been particularly monetizable because it's digital art you can make as many copies of it as you want now right now uh, I think that the market is looking at things in a very naive way and saying that, so when I think of NFTs, I think of like, um, like a, a physical key, right? Like a key you put into a lock and, and open it. And the value of a key is that it can unlock things that you don't have access to if you don't have the key. Um, the way I've been kind of describing the period we're in right now for NFTs is that people have figured out that you can paint keys, right? And then they're looking at the at the painting on the key, right? And they're saying, oh, this is such a pretty key. I value it because of how it looks. But the value of the key is not how it looks. The value of the key is what it does. And so that is what I'm particularly excited about and what I believe is coming in the very near future. Um, I've gotten an early look at some, uh, at some uh, very cool one-of-one one NFTs that are coming out that fundamentally change the way that we think about ownership of these things. And I think that that's going to be the new trend. I unfortunately can't talk about it, uh, right now, because I'm under uh, uh, embargo on it. But but again, like where we are now is the very naive way, and where we are going is a way that is much more empowering, much more interesting, um, and uh, you know, and I believe will uh, will drive the market for for a while. The other thing that's interesting about NFTs is just that they're non fungible tokens. So the ability to create a marketplace, the ability to be discovered, the ability to have liquidity is very challenging. I'm very curious to see what happens around that because you can't really have like um, a marketplace 
where every single thing is unique without having basically a, a uh, like like you need to apply something like like the world of DeFi is done with liquidity pools and stuff like that around these things. I don't even know if that's possible, and I don't know if it is possible. Then it would actually help the situation, but we need something like that because otherwise. Like there's going to be an infinite amount of NFTs that are issued by different people for different reasons. And so the ability to kind of at least pair like things together and say these are similar enough that we're going to say that they're they're fungible or that, you know, like it's at least some sort of categorization. Like that's what's really needed for discovery to happen. And you go to all the platforms that are out there today and they're either curated or they're full of junk. Right. Um, and the curated ones you basically can't get onto, and the ones that are full of junk, well, I mean, like they just kind of look junky. So, so it's 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 an interesting challenge, um, and one that I think that we'll overcome. But that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, and they are also not interchangeable. That's what I understand. So, if you buy an NFT on one platform, then you're bound to this one. No, not necessarily. It really depends. Like, there's like uh, there were you know ten NFT platforms last year, and this year there's like 150. And, you know, by the end of the year, there'll be a thousand, right? Like it's going to explode. Yeah. And up until now, all of those are on Ethereum or also on other blockchains? There are other blockchains too. Um, a uh, One just rolled out on Tezos. Uh, Binance Smart Chain has one. Um, Dapper, which is doing the NBA Top Shot and a bunch of others, built their own uh, blockchain called Flow. You know, uh, people are doing them, uh, starting to, just starting to do them on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. The counterparty protocol has been around forever, but now there's also the liquid sidechain. Um, and I believe they just rolled it out. And then RSK, which is a, a sidechain that uses the Ethereum virtual machine, um, is also uh, is also there. Everything has kind of upsides and downsides. And uh, like, it's really tempting to be like, this is the platform that people should use. But I, again, increasingly believe that Different use cases have different requirements. And so to try and dictate to people, you know, what the correct thing is or to try to even pick winners at this point is just silly. Um, so the, the approach that I've always taken, you know, and increasingly take is to um, actually roll uh, tokens off chain and then to to make it so that people can. So, so not actually put them on a blockchain, have them as effectively potential tokens. Right. Because the value of an NFT isn't spending it. Right. The value of an NFT is possessing it and then getting access to something or something like that. Right. So if you take this approach, um, that it makes it so that one, you can deal with people very cleanly who want to spend dollars because most of the people who actually are interested in this stuff just want to use their credit card. And again, like we can argue whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, but if you give them back a token, it's a bad idea, right? Because the, the payment that they give you is reversible. The token that you give them is not reversible. And so that's kind of always been the problem in crypto. Um, but, uh, uh, but if you give them a temporary token, then there's really no no problem there. And then you can give them the option. You say, you know, they, they're like, I, I want this on a blockchain. And you're like, all right, what blockchain do you want it on? Do you want it on Ethereum? It'll cost $15 to put it on Ethereum. Do you want it on, you know, Binance Smart Chain? It'll cost two cents, but the security is probably problematic. Uh, you know, like, so you just kind of give people the options and then they pick what's best for them. And, you know, the winner winds up emerging and we don't have to try to pick things. And at the same time, we don't have to say, oh, well, that's a bad use case, right? That, that you know, that token only costs two cents. So why would you put it on Ethereum? That's a dumb use case. No, it's not a dumb use case. It's just a dumb use case for Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the future, like if you, if I buy an NFT today, like if I would have bought one of yours, you, you minted some in the last months or something. Yeah. <laughs> How, how was that experience for you? And if I would have bought it, uh, which wallet do I need? Um, or how, how do I save it, store it? I have purchased uh, one or two. Um, uh, I bought a, a really cool algorithmic piece from uh, an artist named Israel Wilson, 
Um, that's like the only NFT that I've actually purchased that, but I thought it was really cool. Um, I've been doing, um, some, uh, like, uh, graphic work. Uh, like I take pictures and then I, then I really heavily process them in Photoshop and turn them into painting type things. Um, and so I've been, uh, I've created some on Rarible. I've created some on, uh, more recently on, um, on Mintable. And Mintable has the ability to not have me pay the fees up front. Rarible is great, does everything on chain, but it takes like three transactions uh, to do kind of the whole process. And so you wind up spending a lot of money on that. And I actually like, I've been selling this stuff for like, you know, $200, $300, something like that. And on the, on the cheaper ones, like I actually lost money <laughs> in like absolute terms to, you know, to claim everything and kind of go, go through and do all the stuff. So that's been kind of my way of getting in and experimenting around this stuff. And again, like the people who have been buying my stuff, they're not like, oh, that's the most amazing thing I've seen. They're like, oh, I want to give this person money anyways. And this is really cool. And so what I've been doing is, um, is, uh, is basically having the NFT version. Uh, which is, you know, high quality image, but then I have an uncompressed version of the image that uh, that I've been printing to canvas um, through Costco primarily. And that's been super cool. It's very inexpensive to print this stuff. And so that's been fun um, uh, to, you know, to be able to sell something that is both uh, an NFT work and then also that you can then print, frankly, as many times as you want and, uh, you know, and put on your wall or give to friends or something like that. So that's how I've been doing it. Um, in the future, I'm actually about to try um, uh, Bitcoin uh, counterparty-based uh, uh, NFTs, um, and I think that there's a lot of potential there. It's funny, like for a long time, counterparty and Bitcoin was not viable for this sort of work because it was so expensive to do transactions there. And I mean, these days that's flipped. So in the early days, uh, you know, like Ethereum, like that was the real selling point was that it was very cheap and very fast. And now it's not very cheap. And that may change, right, as they roll out their uh, proof of stake, uh, you know, adaptation. Uh, but uh, today, Bitcoin is actually cheaper. So I think that there's a lot of people, um, you know, from the kind of Bitcoin side of the art scene who are like, I'm interested in NFTs, but I'm concerned that if I do NFTs on anything other than Bitcoin, then all of the people who like me and who patronize my normal art are going to get super mad at me. Um, and, and not like me anymore. Uh, and so like a lot of people are just sitting on the sidelines waiting. But I think that again, like these, these NFT projects are going to make their way to every platform because they've now proven uh, in the marketplace that there's a real use case here. And that real use case, you know, is, is hard to resist. But for a long time, the, the Bitcoin chain uh, and, you know, many of the core developers were just like, why are you putting this on Bitcoin? This is dumb. And they can be right, but Bitcoin's neutral. So it's not really their decision. Yeah, exactly. And if it's on a side chain, I mean, it doesn't matter uh, or on a layer on a two chain, or something. Especially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but if I would buy an NFT from you, uh, would I also get a, a key, a private key to it, uh, like, like in Bitcoin? Yeah. Is this yeah. The same? So, so I mean, so, so the private keys correspond to the addresses, not to the the uh, the specific token. But to your point, yes. Um, without getting too technical, um, Ethereum actually works a little bit differently than Bitcoin does. Bitcoin is based on little tiny chunks of Bitcoin uh, that you call UTXOs or unspent transaction outputs. Um, uh, uh, Ethereum works on an account-based model. So instead of having, so it's more like uh, you write a check and then the check is drawn against your account on the blockchain and the, it's settled on the blockchain. So it's a subtle difference, but, but, um, but it changes kind of how you use some of this stuff. Anyways, the, the long and the short of it is that you do something like MetaMask. I think MetaMask has become kind of the gold standard of, you know, in browser wallets. 
and uh, and is is very good and allows you to have um, you know your own private keys um, and then to allow websites to to kind of set you up to interact with um, uh, with with them in ways that that are great. The only problem with it again is that whenever you do anything on chain, it's there's a cost associated with that, and that cost is pretty expensive today. Mm -hmm. So. As I understand, you as the issuer of the NFT, you have to pay for being on the platform and to issue or mint the NFT. Yeah, you, ju you just have to play, pay to mint the NFT. Um, you don't pay to be on the platform. At least, I mean, like, I'm sure there are platforms where that is true, but none of the ones that I've used, that's been true. Okay. And uh, you pay that with uh, cryptocurrency or with your credit card? And, and yeah. the per... Hmm? Yeah, I mean, all the ones that I've seen have been cryptocurrency, again, because they use smart contracts. And like, the thing about a credit card is that, well, it's not going to communicate with the blockchain. And if it's not <laughs> communicating with the blockchain, then you either aren't using the blockchain or you're relying on someone to communicate that information to the blockchain, which then gets us right back to where we started, which is your trust in people. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I would buy it, I can buy, I can pay with uh, whatever I like or also with cryptocurrency. So most of these, again, uh, most of these are like, uh, like Rarible, for example, um, you pick one type of token that you can accept, right? So you set your price in ETH or you set your price in, you know, Rary, which is their, their on-chain, uh, their, their personal rewards token. Um, but you can't pick multiples. And I actually think that that's a huge problem. Uh, one of the products I created, tokenmarkets.com, that was the whole thing there was I wanted the ability to set up a shop that would look like a shop. And where you could be like, here's the price in Ether, here's the price in, uh, you know, in Dogecoin, here's the price in, you know, with your credit card, here's the price in all of these different arbitrary tokens, here's the price in LTB coin, and there's no dollar price, so I'm not going to set a dollar price, I'll just say that this is 100 LTB coin, and have all of that in one interface, where you could load up lots of items, and then check out, do one set of payments around it, and, you know, and it just works. So, um, so, but that again requires pretty significant off-chain communication. Really, it's not a fully on-chain application, and that is where I think most of this stuff is going: uh, is to applications that are informed by and that utilize blockchains and tokens, but that aren't built on them at a fundamental layer. And if you get around that, then you get around most of the usability problems. You get around most of the, you know, the challenges around how do you deal with users who aren't really, you know, comfortable uh, custodying their own stuff. Um, you know, how do you deal with, uh, you know, again, like a multi-blockchain reality, right? Um, and so, so yeah, so, but, but in the current platforms that I've seen, yeah, it's, you pick one currency and then that gets encoded into the smart contract and that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Any recommendations for uh, people? I mean, I have a friend, she's a photographer and she would be interested in, in selling one of her works as an NFT. Also just to try it out, you know, to try this new form of, of, of art or, or technology. Any recommendations? I think Mintable, I mean, I've been using Mintable more often and I really like it because it has the concept of gasless, um, uh, gasless issuance which basically means you set up the token, but then the token itself isn't created until the person buys it. And when that person buys it, then they pay the fees to create it, right? And so I really like that. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, now, it's you're pushing a cost onto other people, but it means that if you want to set up 100 different pieces, you don't have to pay all of that up front. It only gets paid when something is purchased and when somebody actually wants it enough. It all, it all comes, so, so that would be kind of my suggestion in the short term. Um, you know, if you can get onto a curated platform, uh, they seem to be, you know, very successful. Um, and, uh, but again, like this, this all comes back to 
to not really what are you doing, but how big is your audience, right? How big is your audience? And then like after that, it's like, all right, well, what are you doing? <laughs> but the audience part is the important part of the equation right now. Mm -hmm. And which are the curated platforms? So I believe uh, Foundation is one, Nifty Gateway is one. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I don't know. I have not mm -hmm. spent a lot of time uh, on that particular side of this world. Um, these days, actually, I'm trying to understand what the other platforms are doing differently, right? So, so how is Tezos doing it, right? Because Tezos has been uh, has been getting uh, fairly popular in the NFT scene, very trendy, and the uh, the the one platform I've seen so far. It looks like Tumblr, right? Like this is not like ultra modern design, right? Like like peak, you know, pinnacle stuff. It's just like you can do it here too. It's almost free because Tezos, you know, transactions on these less uh, decentralized chains are so cheap. And then these are projects again. Tezos raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a lot of money. And like, I mean. You know, they got money. They got money to spend on this stuff. They probably invested in crypto. Again, the EOS play really appears to be the the play, right? Which is you raise way more money than you could possibly need. And then you store most of it in, you know, Bitcoin, right? And then you just sit back and you wait. And, uh, you know, and like you kind of win the game just by having, you know, raised the money. And that's honestly always been my complaint about ICOs is that the incentives get all messed up, right? You look at people like the early like uh, Ethereum projects, right? Like Augur is a perfect example. Um, Augur is a decentralized prediction market. In practice, very few people actually use it. They raised um, not that much money at the time, but at a, at a price when Ethereum was so inexpensive that again, just by holding on to it. So what you see in these projects is that they'll like launch the first, you know, first version of it, which is nowhere near mass adoption or any sort of ready for anything. And then a lot of the founders will leave. Um, and those founders, you know, leave because they vested their tokens and now they're basically set for life and they retire and they go do something else. And like, on the one hand, I totally respect that. But on the other hand, like, if the point is to actually manifest change in real life and give people better options, then it's really not about the money. And, uh, you know, and, uh, but again, I, I think, as with Beeple, it's hard to say no to being like, all right, and now I have enough money that I can basically live for the rest of my life without having to do anything. Like that's, I think, hard to resist. I don't think I could resist that if that was a situation <laughs> that was presented with me where I didn't have to, comp you know, where I didn't have to uh, compromise my uh, my personal standards. Like, who could say no to that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, as long as it's in your world, in your ethos, in uh, aligning your to your values, at least. A little bit, <laughs> yeah. Uh, then uh, you would do that, yeah. Okay, Adam, thank you very much. We, we can uh, go longer, Anita. I appreciate that. I totally monopolized oh. and talked a bunch of stuff there, so we can go another half oh, hour. Oh, okay, if you want. cool. You said before, or I always say, one of the advantages of NFTs is also the fact that you, as a the artist or the creator, you could can put in like a smart contract saying, so if I sell it to you and you sell it to somebody else, I always uh, will get a little bit of uh, money or a percentage of it. Is this something that um, one is actually able to do right now or do those platforms not offer that? So the platforms offer it largely at a platform level. Um, the challenges around, so right now there's a standard underway, probably multiples, but at least one standard that's currently being developed that would be, here's exactly how you implement this, you know, into a smart contract. And then here's how, as a marketplace, you, you respect it and read it. Now, the reality of it is, is that marketplaces don't have to do this. Marketplaces have to choose that they want to do this. But I think that it's something that many will choose to do. Um, 
I think that uh, really, though, this comes down to an, like an incentivization problem, uh, <clears throat> which is that like there's an incentive for the artist to want it. There's an incentive for the platform to want it. There's not really an incentive for the person buying it to want it. Right. And so when you have the idea of like a blockchain, like if everything sells on the blockchain, right, and it's all like smart contract transactions, then that's fine. But that means you're cutting out all the dollar transactions, it means you're cutting out all the transactions coming from other chains and a whole bunch of other potential people who would be interested in it. And so I think that um, what I believe will happen, and I may try to make it happen myself, is, um, is to drive this with a rewards program. Where the the token that where where the reason to honor this contract and the reason to do it is that you get back a token that says that you're a patron basically right because that's what we're talking about here we're talking about patronage and uh, you know we live in an era where like money is crazy cheap unless you actually really need it um, and if you need it then it's basically impossible to get. Um, but if you don't need it, then it's not. So we're in this era where like increasingly the people who have money are and will even more so in the future conduct conspicuous spending, right? Where the purpose of the spending, the purpose of the, of the you know, economic activity isn't really about them wanting to do something, you know, like for monetary purposes. It's more that they want to feel good and that there are ways that they can feel good uh, as a result of spending money. And so I think that you'll see something like that. Um, and I would like to see something like that because I believe that it aligns incentives appropriately. And then you use this token to set up leaderboards, right? Where it's like, here's the top patrons for all of the scene. Here's the top patrons for this particular artist. Here's the top patron for this particular style, right? Uh, for a particular platform. And that's something, again, that as a token really actually makes a lot of sense. So, um, so there are challenges around it, uh, mostly in just like making it so that the game theory doesn't push people to want to cheat the system because you can't. But if you set up the incentives properly, then yeah, I think it's really powerful. And as an idea, I think it's incredibly powerful. It's something that's really um, you know, needed because the, the phenomenon, I won't go into this in detail, but the phenomenon basically is that um, oftentimes artists wind up competing with their earlier works. And where their earlier works are the more desirable ones, they don't get any money from that. They're still producing um, you know, current works, and now their current work is less desirable than their early work, which actually causes this problem. So, if the, so the idea is, is that if you build up this, uh, you know, this, um, this library of pieces that trade and you get 2.5% off them, and you know, like if they're well-valued, then like that's, that's real income on an ongoing basis. So I would love to see us figure that out, but, but there are challenges just like everything else. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the interview, we were talking about the new renaissance uh, that uh, Bitcoin will bring and also this patronage uh, system sounds a little bit like the Medici back then uh, in the, these ages uh, who like uh, paid artists um, to do their work. Um, What do you see here? What what's the future here for you? What is This, the idea? Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, transparently, like, um, you know, <laughs> I, I I'm actually taking a week off from CoinDesk right now, and I'm focusing on my other projects because Tokenly is still around. I hibernated it for 18 months, but when I saw the Top Shot stuff start to happen, that was the the, the sounding bell was off, and it was obvious because because like Windows open and Windows close, right? Windows of opportunity, and the window of opportunity around NFTs is so wide open this year. 
that I, I don't know anybody who isn't thinking along these same lines, right? And is, is trying to figure out how do I best take advantage of this moment? How do I best position the change that I want to implement into the world such that it gets pulled along by this wave that we're seeing happen right now? And how do I do that before this window closes? Because these windows always close. So, um, so I'm, I'm working on lots of things. Hopefully I'll be able to announce stuff sooner, uh, soon. But uh, the reality of it is that... Um, you know, I think that the the Medici uh, type patronage thing, I think that is very much happening right now. And I think that we will start to see larger showpieces come out that really sort of start to rival the type of work that you, you would see there. You know, the the statue that takes a particular artisan, you know, a year to create, right? Like those types of works are being done. It's not a statue that they're creating. It's, you know, audiovisual experiences. It's, you know, virtual reality stuff. It's metaverse stuff. Um, you know, and things that go far beyond kind of what we currently see in NFTs. And so I think the market will change aggressively once we start seeing those prestige pieces, as I like to think about them, start to come out. Um, and then the the ability to like the ability to see something is not the point. The ability to be like, I'm the Medici in this situation, right? Like that's the point. And that's incredibly valuable in an era where, again, there's so much money for people who don't need it. And, uh, and again, like that then feeds into this, you know, like when you look at the Beeple sale, like that was largely two people, <laughs> right? Justin Sun and Medicoven, right? And they just bid each other up and bid each other up and bid each other up until they were, you know, they basically jumped at $50 million, right? Uh, very close to the end. And they probably would have gone further, except Justin Sun said that he couldn't actually place his last bid. So that's the thing is like, you don't need a lot of people to do this. You need people who care deeply, who have silly amounts of money to do it. And then that's how you wind up in this situation. And so, yeah, I mean, like, that's the world that we're in right now is an increasing number of people have silly amounts of money. And so I think we're going to see a lot of this. And I think it's going to be a very good thing broadly, although it will be certainly like, uh, you know, like I said, very top heavy, right? Very, you know, like top 1%, top 5% get most of the benefit and then everybody else gets like a little bit. But still, net net, it's better than the alternative. Yeah. I mean, um, do you think of monetizing your podcasts uh, through streaming sets with uh, Sphinx app or Breeze? I've tried that. Um, we're, we're doing it right now. Um, I really like the Lightning Network conceptually. I think that um, implementation wise, like we're closer now than we've ever been to it being really usable. Um, and I think that Sphinx chat, again, like opened my eyes to, to how easy that experience could be. I still think that there are a lot of challenges around it. Um, and I still think that... Uh, you know, that again, like, it's just, it, you know, like the on-ramps are getting easier, but there are still just technical challenges to actually scaling this thing to the level that we need to do. So um, I, I used to be like, when's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? You know, like, and these days I'm just like, when it happens, it'll happen. You know, trying to predict it, trying to plan around, you know, assumptions around that stuff. It's just a losing game because these are hard problems and we don't really know how to solve them. Um, so I'm excited about that type of thing. And uh, it's funny. Uh, so I, uh, so Adam Curry uh, uh, is one of the uh, original podcasters, very inspirational to me. He does a show called No Agenda. Um, and I listened to it for a long time. When I was first getting into Bitcoin, I listened to it a lot. And uh, it, no ads on it, all user supported. And so very early on, I actually sent him five Bitcoin. And I was like, <laughs> and uh, and like they, they got it. And I don't remember exactly how it went, but I remember being like, well, that was a dumb move on my part because they basically just made fun of me. 
And then like a couple of years later, they're like, oh, well, this, you know, this Bitcoin thing, maybe there's maybe there's something here. And so it was really cool to see that he's actually one of the driving forces behind this Sphinx chat and behind this push to effectively take the model that they've always had with their show and turn it into something where you can just passively by listening to it actually stream money to them. I think that's really cool. Um, and again, it's another uh, it's, it's another kind of beaconing event, right, uh, where like for a long time they didn't care. But then the value got to the point where they couldn't really ignore it anymore. And so and so then they were like, all right, well, you know, this this is fine. Like, we'll accept this. We're not going to you know have a problem with it. And then now they're to the point where they're like, oh, we see the possibilities of what you could build in the future with this. And that's really exciting to me because seeing people again, like it's the PayPal story, right? It's like PayPal starts off completely against and then winds up being like, ah, you know, I mean, I see which way the wind is blowing. So we might as well get out in front of this and, you know, use the advantage that we have while we have it. And I, that's the story of the whole world right now. Mm. And I mean, what I, from personal experience, also see in the Bitcoin podcasting space is exactly what you said. I mean, Adam Curry and his podcasting 2.0 model is fantastic, but I can't switch to that because, I mean, I, I have the Sphinx uh, chat uh, set up. My feed is in there. Uh, my note is connected. And like in the last month, I made like six us dollars yeah <laughs> i mean yeah it's nice but how shall i live of that it's Any a proof of concept yeah i mean that's really yeah. what it is it's a, it's a proof of concept but it's a good proof of concept there have been so many awful proof of concepts right where it's like completely unusable and it's like all right well this is possible but we're gonna need you know a year of user interface work and experimentation before anybody besides us is going to be able to use this as i like about sphinx chat sphinx chat is really simple and, um, and so I like it, you know, again, still very early adopter, but we're so much closer than we've ever been around that, that I find it to be perfect, personally, very exciting. I try to engage on there whenever, uh, whenever I can, I think we have 35 people in our tribe right now. Uh, so, uh, like, uh, I, I feel you, Anita. <laughs> yeah, I have, I think I have 41. So yeah. I'm oh, ahead of go. you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but to be honest, for newbies and beginners, uh, I think the Breeze uh, wallet is much easier to use because you don't have to need, you don't need an, your own note. Uh, you just need the wallet and uh, you can start uh, sending sats. I mean, from my side, um, like as the receiver, um, it's a little bit... Yeah, uh, not as good as the Sphinx chat because the Breeze uh, wallet takes like, I think, 5% or something. But I also can choose to share uh, a part of the stream immediately to the podcasting 2.0 uh, people and to the Sphinx uh, developers, which I think is great because then you don't have to do all this accounting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We will see what uh, the tax uh, <laughs> authorities will say to that. But I think, yeah, that's, that's time. That's in the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really, like, I really like protocols. I think protocols and common sets of rules that allow different applications to do things entirely their own way, but still be interconnected to each other and still be interconnected in ways that make them more useful and usable. Like, I think that is the future of this stuff. And it doesn't need to be like a formal, you know, like new cryptocurrency protocol. It's just a set of rules, right? But the having that set of rules then allows a community to form. And that really is where you start to get network effects that can be really meaningful. So I haven't actually used Breeze at all. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, as an ecosystem play, I love when more companies do different things that are slightly different takes on the same thing. It just means we're more likely to find the thing that really works. Exactly. That's how innovation works. Yeah. Everybody is free to, to use everything and to build his or her, her own stuff. So, um, we're coming to an end soon. 
my last uh, question, or I'm interested in tokenly. What is it, and uh, what can can somebody like who has a small business sell stuff there, or how does this work? So tokenly started off, like I said, as a as an infrastructure play to create tools that I needed in order to do the program that I was doing at LTB. Um, it became uh, it became a project that uh, first I was very focused on. Um, I was very focused on uh, crowdfunding. Um, uh, I, had, I had participated in a lot of crowdfunding projects. And one of the problems that I had seen over and over again was that a lot of times these projects would take a year. Um, and, uh, and you know, over the course of that year, someone who had put in 40 bucks or something like that would be like, I need that money back, right? Like, you know, like I, you know, like I need all the money that I can get because I had a sudden school expense come up and I need to deal with that. And it's more important than this. And in crowdfunding, there really is no, no way to do that because you are giving people the money to then enact the project, right? And so I was like, a token solves this problem. All you do is instead of giving them a reward promise, you give them a token. And now if they need to sell the thing, well, they just sell it to someone else as a token. And now that person has the claim, the money doesn't come out of, they get the money that they need, the money doesn't come out of the project. Because what, what would happen is that sometimes people would say, yes, I will give you a refund. And then this would trigger more people to ask for refunds uh, because you know they're a little concerned. And then I even saw some projects collapse under their own weight. Um, like a number of them actually, um, back in 2013, 2014, uh, where it's like they had so many uh, refund requests that they, on the one hand, declined them, in which case all these people are super pissed and they go from being your biggest fans to like the people who are just harassing you. Uh, or on the other side, you actually give the refunds and it collapses. Well, we discovered uh, once we actually got in and started talking to the companies that were out there is that it fundamentally changes the risk profile around this stuff. And it makes it when you make something transmissible, you create opportunities for it to look like money transmission. You create opportunities for just for all, all sorts of complexity that isn't in the model. And so that kind of kiboshed that. Long and the short of it is that um, is that tokenly is a suite of different products that um, that all kind of play different roles in the ecosystem. So tokenmarkets.com. Um, is an e-commerce platform that has the best of traditional e-commerce built into it with all of the kind of advanced token stuff that we were working on. So in addition to being able to sell tokens or accept tokens as forms of payment, you can also uh, set them up as access tokens, where the only way you can access uh, something to buy is because you have a particular combination of tokens set by the person who's who's setting that. Or you can set up tokens that represent discounts, where if we see in your wallet that you have a particular token, then that corresponds to a particular discount on a product or something like that. And you don't have to spend it. It's just like, you know, it's like a membership badge or something like that. Um, so that's, that's that. Token Pass um, is, a, is a product basically where you prove to the service. It's like a, a standard, uh, like a login with Facebook kind of thing. Um, uh, but, but the difference is, is that you prove to the service that you own a particular Bitcoin, Ethereum or whatever address, and then it tracks that. And then you log into applications using a username and password or by signing a message with your wallet. Um, and, uh, uh and then, uh, you authorize certain types of information to that project, right? So instead of logging with MetaMask and the project, knowing what your address is and all of the different tokens that you have, you have the ability to turn on or off tokens, right? Or you have the ability to restrict it such that, uh, such that rather than looking at your balances, it says, does this user have this token, this token, and four of that token? Yes or no, right? And so you just kind of can, uh, you on the one hand, make it so that you can deal with people who aren't sophisticated enough to set up a wallet. Um, and on the other hand, you make it so that users who are sophisticated enough to set up a wallet can have a lot more privacy than they get in that traditional circumstance. And then the final product is um, token.fm. 
um, which is uh, basically which is basically um, like a, a service that allows you to associate and uh, and bundle um, any sort of media content um, uh, with a token. So you bring in a token, it's the Anita Posh token, and you say, all right, uh, anybody who owns my Anita Posh token gets access to my podcast a week early. And then you release it on that, and effectively it is a, a streaming service um, uh, backend for that. And then also it's accessible via API. So you can actually port this out to your uh, website itself and say, you know, anybody who's, who has my token, you know, log in here and, uh, you know, and then you can access this content kind of upfront. And there's a lot more to it, but that's kind of the, the basics of it. And I, I won't go too deeply into it. Um, so, uh, right now you cannot use it. <laughs> um, uh, so for a long time, we were very focused on creating these platforms as things that we wanted to onboard people onto, um, you know, and, and make big. So everybody would use token markets, right? And over the last couple of years, I really came to believe that that is the wrong approach. Um, and I believe most people are taking the wrong approach right now. What, what I've seen is that everybody wants their own thing. They don't want to build someone else's brand. They don't want to participate in someone else's brand. They want to build their own brand. Um, and so I've increasingly gone to a white label first approach, which basically means that we build platforms, but then those platforms, like we have demos of them up, but really it's about, you know, having someone who comes along and is like, I want the ability to do this, this, and this. And then they launch their own versions of the platforms. They bring in their own audience to it. They use it themselves. And Tokalene is just a service provider in the background. Um, and again, that's the role that I want to play. I want to be, again, like I want to enable all of this stuff, but I don't want to be involved with it. I don't want to be a partner. I don't want to, you know, like take a big rev share or anything like that. I just want it to be possible. I want it to be easy. And I want it to be something where, again, people can have better options to then do what they want, to enact kind of their vision of, of that stuff. And I think, again, that's what cryptocurrency comes back to is it's, you know, the reason why I getting back to the very beginning of our conversation. The reason why I was so interested in Bitcoin is because of the idea of unstoppable competition for currency. Um, like we've seen lots of people try to make better forms of money before, and they've never been allowed to do that because there's a monopoly on money, lots of monopolies on money, actually, regional monopolies. And you can't really fight that in, in a traditional sense. But if you use a blockchain, well, it's not that you're fighting it, it's that you're almost like operating on a different plane of existence from it, right? And so, like, it doesn't matter what they want to do. They can flail all they want, but you're, like, you know, intangible in a way that makes it very um, very easy to demonize and very hard to fight. Uh, so, so it comes back to that for me, like, at the highest level, is that this is about giving people better options than they currently have without it. And if you do give people better options, it doesn't mean that they should take it. It means that they should choose whether they take it. And we should all choose what we do. Well, I'm very much looking forward to the news, um, what you're working on. And at the end of May, you said uh, there will be something new. So I'm working on, I'm always working <laughs> on way too many things. Um, so yeah, uh, like, like I said, this NFT that, uh, that uh, I'm really excited about. I didn't make it, somebody else made it. Um, but uh, I got an exclusive for it for a show that I'm launching. Um, about NFTs. And so that'll be coming out towards the end of, of May. And uh, it will be hard to miss, I think, uh, when it does come out. Um, and then uh, as far as all this uh, tokenly stuff is concerned, like I said, like I'm full time at Coindesk. So I'm kind of juggling, right? Like, uh, so I'm spinning up the other team, right? And then <laughs> and I'm, I'm going back over there because I don't want to take any money from the project. I just want this stuff to manifest in real life, right? Like that's really where I am now is like, when you've been, when you've been here, uh, as long as I have, I mean, and even before that, like, I think we all just want change so much. Like we just want, again, like the money is, 
the money, right? Like the money is money. Uh, and that's great. Like if you, if you get rich off this, then that's fantastic. Um, but the real get here is, uh, is autonomy, right? Is, is op is opportunity and is uh, kind of choice. Um, and so I believe that we are closer to that than we've ever been. Um, you know, I hope that, that that is what manifests in real life. But I've learned over the last number of years that it's really, really hard to do that. And uh, you can go in with the best of intentions. And many people don't go in with the best of intentions. But you can go in with the best of intentions. And your chances of succeeding are probably still maybe 1%. Right? So, so like, it's a, it's a game that's very important to play. But it's also a game where we look around and it's like, oh, I see all these projects that are successful. And this is called survivor bias. Um, where, like, because we only see the ones that are still around, because we see the ones that are successful, we assume that there's a higher likelihood of success that, that is, um, that is for, for all of us. And it's just not true. Like, the challenge is there. Like, the technology has really never been the challenge. When Bitcoin introduced the idea of a blockchain, the idea of Byzantine fault-tolerant, um, you know, consensus, that was the hard problem, really, that we've solved. And everything else since then has been figuring out what are the implications of this? What else can we do with it? You know, what does this empower us to, to change about the world? Um, so, you know, like there will be more breakthroughs like that, but it's very hard to predict. And honestly, the important one has already happened. So I'm excited to see where this goes. I'm very excited to see if Ethereum can actually, you know, successfully make the jump to proof of stake. Because if they do, that'll be the new paradigm that we're operating in is launching as proof of work and then migrating over to a proof of stake. Because, uh, again, like for, for all the you know, innovation that happens in this space, like most of this is just following perceived best practices. Right. Like what what did what worked for Ethereum? Oh, I'm going to do that thing. I'm an Ethereum killer now. Right. Uh, you know, except like I changed this number over here, like, oh, Bitcoin. Oh, well, what if we, we increase the supply? What if we, we decrease the block size to one minute or the block time to one minute and we increase the amount to, uh, to 10,000 Dogecoin issued on a per block basis, right? <laughs> and now that's Dogecoin, right? Like it's, it's a better version of Bitcoin in a very specific sense. Uh, and, uh, and again, like the, all of that stuff is great, but the important innovations have already happened and, uh, you know, we just needed to continue to filter through to reality and that's getting closer every day. Yeah, exactly. Filtering is uh, a very important, um, tool that you need. Yeah. What is important and what's not important. Yeah. To distinguish yeah. that. Yeah. And who knows in the current environment? I mean, that's the other crazy part about it is like for everything that's important about Bitcoin, the environment that we're in right now is the most important factor by far, probably by an order of magnitude compared to the actual technology itself. Without that driving it, without that need for, um, for some type of alternative and without the cognitive dissonance that I believe that the current environment generates, right? The, the sense that something is wrong, but everyone is telling you that nothing is wrong. Um, you know, like that I think is... Um, you know, like that's what's driving a lot of this. And, the, you know, in, in the casino, right, like the uh, which which is really where we are, like the, the best games are the ones that have the least to them. And so, again, like you look at something like Doge and it's easy to understand like that. That's what it is. And it's not about hard money. Right. It's not about like this being some good form of something. It's just about it being, you know, the times that we're in. And uh, it's good and it's bad, but it just is. We will, we will stay and we will see what's going on in the next three, four, five years uh, and how it turns out. <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Where can people find and follow your work? Yeah. So um, I do a morning show for Coindesk uh, called Markets Daily. Um, you can look that up on any sort of podcast player. Um, uh, so the Let's Talk Bitcoin show uh, has been rebranded as uh, Speaking of Bitcoin as of uh, mid last year. 
And, uh, and so you can find us at speakingofbitcoin.show. You can also find us on Andreas Antonopoulos' YouTube channel, and uh, pretty soon we'll be distributed elsewhere as well. Um, and uh, you can always email me at adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. Um, I'm fairly responsive. As I said, I'm always doing like 40% too much, but, uh, but I, I try to respond whenever I can. And, uh, you know, thank you very much for your time, Anita. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for all you told us. Uh, incredible stories. I didn't know that, that you uh, sent five Bitcoin to Adam Curry. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I hope uh, see you again soon. Yes. Thank you, Anita. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining the Anita Posh Show today to learn more about Bitcoin. You can find the show notes for this conversation on anita.link slash show. If you want to get the best stories in Bitcoin from my point of view in your mailbox, go to anita.link slash weekly and subscribe. And if you have a question or just want to send me some feedback, drop me a line at hello at anitaposch.com. See you next week when it's time for the Anita Posh Show. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Content, idea and production, Anita Posh.